This season of The 80 is kindly brought to you in association with artisan food producers Moorish. Moorish uses only the best ingredients to create their deliciously different dips. Using traditional methods and adding a unique smoked twist, their products are indeed incredibly Moorish. From the original smoky hummus to zingy lemon and dill smoked hummus, Moorish's creations will delight your taste buds. Our personal favourite in the About Time office is the new Moorish pea hummus, which is exclusive to Sainsbury's. With a delicious pea flavour and 15 grams of protein per pot, it's our ideal indulgent afternoon snack. If you're in the mood for something with a kick, their smoked hummus with chilli harissa is fiery and delicious. Or try their garlic and Sicilian lemon aioli, which is gloriously creamy with a zing of fresh lemon. Available in all good supermarkets, including Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Ocado and Booth's, why not stock up on some Moorish today? Thank you to our sponsors, Moorish. Looking at the best things to do in London and beyond? From food to fitness, bars to going out, this is the AT, the About Time Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the AT Show. We're back. We are. Who are we? We're still alive. We just went on, people call it hiatus. We went on a hiatus, we yeah. went on a hiatus. But we are back, I'm Angelica, um, I'm the editor of About Time magazine. And I'm Alicia, I'm deputy editor of About Time magazine. And, and this is the AT show, where we just talk about restaurants and food and London and what's going on. Yeah, if you're new, if you're a new listener... Um, Welcome. Well, yeah. What do you think they can expect from this season? Um, some puns, some eggs, hopefully some laughs, maybe... <laughs> Pressure. Are we going to get some stories about your awful Tinder dates? Oh, God, went on an awful one yesterday. <laughs> anyway, that's made for the dating show. Um, and we've got so much coming up over the next couple of weeks, so many good things. I mean, London, it's never boring. So uh, we'll be bringing you new things, pop-ups, collaborations, fitness, dating, cocktails. Just the works. So if you don't know how this show works is Alicia and I sit in a room and talk about London and we talk about a different theme every week and we bring in some special guests who are kind of movers and shakers in London doing interesting things. And then at the end of the show, we review restaurants and try not to slate them. Yes. <laughs> so this week we are talking about London trends. We thought because it's been a while since we've recorded an episode, we would fill you in in what's been happening in London in the last few months, the trends that we're seeing emerging, or the exciting things that are happening. Quite a lot. So, kicking this off, okay, so tell me what's going on in London, Alicia. Immersive dining. Okay, expand. So immersive dining is basically food with a theatrical element mm. thrown in. So... You know, people don't really just want to eat in a restaurant anymore. They want, you know, they want cabaret. They want to dance. They want a song, you know? Bit of theatre. Yes. So there's actually quite a lot of um, immersive dining options available in London. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about them. So there's a cool new one at the Vaults in Waterloo. Yes. So that's Divine Proportions, which is inspired by Greek goddesses. Greek mythology. Greek mythology. It's a five-course menu you know, think Zeus, think grapes, <laughs> think wine, you know. I can really tell that you did not pay attention in school. <laughs> like, think grapes. So five courses all inspired by ancient Greece. Yes. Um, and there is a raunchy cabaret show, not my words, <laughs> um, that kind of goes on while you're eating your dinner. 
Amazing. And then, and then afterwards, it's like party time. I just love it because the appetite for this stuff in London is mad. Like, I don't think in any other city people would get this excited about doing like ridiculous things with cabaret and ancient Greece. So why wonderful. not? I, I love it. The sky's the limit. Um, and that is, yet, like you said, that's running at the vaults until January. Okay, so, so plenty of time to see it. Fantastic. What else is happening? Okay, another one really exciting, quite dark, quite twisted, um, a bit mad, um, is Journey to the Underworld. So it's based in a train carriage. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you don't move. The joys of technology. (laughs) A sensory train carriage. It's a three-course meal. They've recruited MasterChef, the professionals finalist, uh, Louisa Ellis, who's in charge of the food. I would like to point out at this point that dietary requirements are catered for. Oh, great. Game changer. Bring your vegan friend. Yes. So it's a mixture of fear, fantasy, danger and lust. Wow. The story is about some mad um, shackled conductor, his assistant called Gordy. They're on a quest for absolution, redemption and eternal love. It will take them all the way to the underworld. <laughs> okay. Well, at least it sounds like the food's going to be good, if nothing yes. else. I think with this one, though, it looks quite big budget. Yeah, yeah. They have, they have gone quite The big. whole train carriage that doesn't move. Yeah, it's a scary feast. Yeah, and I think also that I tried to find out where it was, and they said, I, th- I couldn't see a location, so I presume that you buy a ticket and then it's, it's revealed once you've bought a ticket. But you can get tickets on Design My Night for that one. Yeah. Journey into the Underworld. And then finally, Gingerline, which is the one that everyone knows and loves, they're back with what they're calling to be their most ambitious dining experience yet. You've been to Gingerline before, haven't you? I have been to Gingerline. It's incredible because the moment you get in there, you're immersed. You know, no, even the people that are taking your drinks orders, it's not, mm. you know, it's not Harry from Dulwich. You know, he's... You <laughs> he's know. an actor. He is. Um, it's really good. I went and it was a Singapore-themed uh, immersive experience. And in order to get to the dining room, you had to board this sort of fake boat. And they pushed you under a tunnel. It was mad. It wow. was totally bonkers. And then you go into the... You journey around the different rooms. Now, for this ginger line, it's no... You're not journeying around. You're in just one banquet hall. Mm. However, there are mad things that change, pivot, spray you... You know, so it doesn't feel like you're missing out. <laughs> okay, so it's still going to be, like, very sensory. Yes. But it's sold out, hasn't it? It's sold out until 2019. Wow, that's um, amazing. So if you want to grab a ticket for 2019... Get involved. Nothing like a good old plan ahead. Yeah. That's what I say. See you in 2019. Okay, so beyond um, all the crazy food stuff that's happening, I have decided that meditation has become a big trend in London, and I'm calling it. Because I I think 2017, 2018, I think for me was the year of yoga, where all of a Mm. sudden yoga was no longer this slightly niche thing that your slightly weird hippie friend did but actually it was way more in the mainstream and lots of people were doing yoga and officers were offering it. And I think meditation has become the new yoga in that sense. That I also sort of think that meditation sounds a bit scary and a bit inaccessible. And what we're seeing is way more places in London offering it and offering drop-in meditation. So it's actually becoming more of an accessible thing and it's not just like your one friend who does it. Um, so for example there is a new place called In Here which is in the city near Monument and it's London's first drop-in meditation studio I watched a YouTube video for it and essentially it's a like quite swanky looking darkened room with like relaxing music playing and it has these little pods that you sit in basically a comfortable chair and you can just go and find a bit of a 
bit of peace in the city, which I think is a really nice idea. So hang on, there's no one there. So the, no, in this in the drop-in one, there's not. It's not guided, but you can, however, hire in here to do private guided meditation classes and workshops. And what that what I've seen they've been doing a lot of is going to big kind of corporate offices and going in and doing meditation classes for the offices, which I think is a great idea. I think corporate wellness is quite a trend. I mean, I know I don't work in the work we don't in the work city. in the corporate. We're like I the th- furthest yes. thing from the city, but I do think that from my friends who work in the city that companies are starting to care more about the wellness of they their, are. their employees so do you do you meditate um i've, I've tried I've, I've i've got a lot of apps um but i think sometimes i think meditation is how is kind of you do you so for me meditation is like going for a walk and like listening to a podcast is what i call meditation i'm sure strictly that isn't meditation but i think meditation is also just what calms you i agree I and this is awful to say, but my mind does wonder. Mm. I know it's very cliche. I I get the app, you know, you know. I think, I think, and then I'm like, oh, did I feed the cat? <laughs> Do I need to wash my hair? It, it's sort of those things. Yeah. So I think you. It's be, a skill. It's a skill. It is. It's an art. So I think you'd be more suited to guided meditation, where someone actually teaches you. So now that you mention it there is another place called Remind which is um, a London studio which does drop-in meditation classes which are half an hour or 60 minutes it's in Victoria and I really like it because I think it's perfect for like beginners like you whose mind wanders the whole time and people that are more advanced but what I quite like about it is that each one of their classes it has a particular focus in mind so they have Rebreathe which is a class to do with learning how to breathe and to calm through breathing breathing and <laughs> through breathing <laughs> learn how to breathe um through breathing they also have re-aim which is about focusing so they have all these quite cool classes so that might be good for you maybe you should go and try it i will do i think i need some more mindfulness <laughs> in my life but also we work in a co-working space so that's it's hard to be mindful when you've got quite a lot of people around you it's hard to get those five minutes of yes like, we didn't we didn't miss lunch and learn today so <laughs> we didn't learn much at lunch no didn't learn anything speaking of co-working Big things, hot, trendy, they're popping off. People just don't just want a, a you know a fixed office anymore, do they? No, I think there is such a new trend towards flexible working, and it's not enough just to like work out of a costa. Everyone wants to have this like very, very trendy office which has like kombucha on tap and lunch and learn. Yes, and free tea and coffee, which I'm a big fan of. Um, so, still point spaces is is taking their coworking space one step further. They've 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 called themselves London's first psychological co-working space, purpose-built to encourage reflective, intentional work and collaboration. Wow. So I think quite, it's a co-working... Quite heavy. Quite heavy. I think it's a co-working space designed for people who have an interest in psychology. Yes. So it's kind of desi- designed for counsellors and therapists and coaches and that kind of thing, which I think is so smart. I think it might be the way things go, is that you have co-working spaces which have a particular industry focus. So you might have a co-working space that's dedicated to food or to um, to wellness. Like You might find that it actually segments in that way. Also, there is a lot of... Um co-working spaces that are kind of tech mm. based you know and or creative yeah so maybe something like this is a good idea so this is a psycho uh, psychological co-working space and they have like special rooms that you can hire as therapists and and it's also encouraging members of the public to engage in psychological thinking Another co-working space near Liverpool Street is Bank and Bow I've heard a lot about this there's a lot on social about it 
kind of think Norwegian inspired, a lot of plants, a lot of benches. It means actually bench and live in Norwegian, so <laughs> quite fitting. Um, and it's everything all under one roof. So you've got a cafe, a yoga studio, an event space and a co-working space. Cool. I feel like this is the way it's going, that they're creating these spaces that aren't just where you go to work, but actually where you go to work and live. So you can go to your yoga class and then you can work and have a coffee. It's like this lifestyle integration thing. I think we were doing this before it was trendy. Like I remember, you know, we always thought you don't need to be in an office. You can work from a beach. Before this, all these co-working spaces happening, we were doing this anyway, but now they've created spaces where this is what people go to do. I think I don't think people want to work in an office all the time. No. I also don't think it's good for the old brain. <laughs> I don't think you need to be in an office. No, it's also not always good for the brain to be in a Costa, though. Yeah, that's true. Like, I, you need I, a bit of structure, yeah. so it's quite a good halfway house to have somewhere to go. Yeah, because there's only so many coffees you can nurse at Costa, you know. <laughs> And then the final co-working space, which I think is like the height of trendiness, is in Clerkenwell. And it's basically a place where there's a nursery, an Ofsted-rated nursery. So you can take your kid under the age of two, drop them off at the, the crash nursery. They can be occupied with the, with the people that are looking after them and having fun. And then you go to the co-working space, which is adjoining, and you can get on with your work. So it's like the perfect thing for the modern, flexible parent. It's called Cuckoo's Nest. What do you think? I've, I've heard it all now. I mean, I think it's a good idea because childcare in London very expensive. I think it's a great idea. I can imagine when we've got the little babbles, just you know, drop them off at the, the AT crash. crash. The AT crash. Drop them off the crash. Go run the magazine. Perfect. Why not? It's the kind of thing that if I told my grandma that, she'd be like, what's the world coming to? It's just, it's too much. You kids have got too but much. Then, but then those things like that, the whole nursery and the co-working space, you do wonder why they haven't thought of it sooner because it is pretty revolutionary mm. in the yeah. grand scheme of things. And you think, well, actually, yeah, you could have done this five years ago. Yeah, there's another one that I was reading about called Entrepreneursery. Ooh. Ooh, they've gone there. <laughs> Which is, a ner- you know, you take kids to the nursery and then it's designed for young entrepreneurs. Well, on that note, um, join us. Join us in after the break. After the, do you say that in podcasts? <laughs> join us after the break. Yes, for our guests, we've got um, Matthew and Joseph talking about sensory dining and a new cocktail bar. This is the AT, the About Time podcast. So this is the part of the show where we invite some London movers and shakers on to talk to us about what they're getting up to. So this week's episode is all about London trends. So we thought we'd bring some trendy people in. Matt Roberts, we've decided that you're officially trendy. Wow, that's a strong title. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you for having me. So you are the founder of a Genuine Liquorette, which is a new bar. That's right. I've been trusted with the, with the operations of Genuine Liquorette, London. Um, we are having our first big party this evening. And so I've snuck off away from so you've operations. So you've left them. <laughs> you've left them. Yeah, yeah, left exactly. Left them in the lurch. That's fine. You know, they got it. And um, yeah, I thought I'd hang out with you guys, explain a little bit about what we're doing, how we're doing it. So what is Genuine Liquorette? So Genuine Liquorette is a, is, we are a bar on Rathbone Place, based in Fitzrovia, um, just sandwiched between Charlotte Street and Soho Square. The bar itself, the concept is very much taking the traditional template of a bar and kind of turning it inside out almost literally if you if you get the opportunity to join us you'll you'll understand a little bit about the fact that we've smashed that that preconceived idea that it has to be the guest the bar the bartender and then the booze 
Mm. And that um, we've done that literally upstairs. Um, our our booth is all kind of decorating the walls. It's fantastically expensive wallpaper, but there is uh, there is a drop there for everybody. But each of the concepts within the building is is based around breaking down that that um, that kind of making it more accessible for the guests, mm. understanding that as much as we put time, effort and energy into creating fantastic drinks, it really shouldn't be that difficult for anybody to do. Sounds cool. And how did the idea for the bar come about? So we took inspiration from a genuine liquorette in New York. Um, they have got a fantastic concept with their, what they refer to as the rough justice um, uh, program. So we, we offer we do a little tutorial on how to put together your own own old fashioned and we sell uh, the brown boozy spirits by the gram. So we will drop a bottle on the table. We'll weigh it before. And after you've had a little uh, go on that bottle, teach you how to use that to make uh, an old fashioned. And then we'll suggest maybe you go and try an old fashioned with tequila, maybe try uh, an old fashioned with rum or scotch or brandy. And so you get the opportunity to similar to table service, but it's much less pretense. You get to dart around and um, explore the, the big crazy world of booze. So basically like taking people out of their boozy comfort zone in a way and getting them to try new things. I would say, I would say expanding their comfort zone, mm-hmm. making sure that they understand that, I mean, I think we're, we've all done it where we've walked into a bar and we think, okay, cool. First of all, is this the right place? The map's told me that this is the right place or like there's a small little plaque on the wall outside. Um, you know, is it, is it going to be, is it going to be my kind of scene? Are the drinks going to be good? Are they going to, I'm here to impress my guests. Are they going to help me do that? Or are we both going to look silly? And it's about making sure that people feel comfortable in that area and expanding their comfort zone. Mm. What's your favorite drink on the menu? My favorite drink on the menu Hmm. has got to be a drink called an algaquin and we've got this fantastic concept called chachunking and it is as straightforward as the noise it makes we've got this chunky piece of uh, workshop machinery and all it does is press a, a great big hole in the top of one of these cans we stick a little splash of this a couple of drops of uh, another ingredient and then we stick a miniature inside it as well so the algaquin itself is a scotch drink which is steeped in history and to serve it justice what we've done is taken a little miniature of scotch a couple of splashes of this a couple of splashes of that and stuck it in the top of a can of pineapple fanta so it is it's like a little tongue-in-cheek it's this there's respect and homage to one degree but also again breaking down those rules is like oh this um you know this classic cocktail soup in it uh, whatever just just have fun with drinking and if you can't have fun with drinking what's the point i mean mm. So that's that's my guy. I mean, that's I've got that sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, but I've got no problem with um, one of my other favorite drinks is a is a Clover Club cocktail. Another one that's kind of steeps in history and tradition and, and whatever and, and kind of you know boring stories. But this is gin and driver mist. So you got your kind of martini template there as well. But it's got egg white. We use we use a kind of vegan foamer at the bar, but it traditionally uses egg white and uh, and raspberries. It's pink. It's fluffy. It's silky. And it's like I've got no problem sitting at any bar with a little pinky out, enjoying this pink and fluffy drink. It's just, it's damn tasty. It really is. Amazing. What do you think about masculine and feminine cocktails? I feel like cocktails are one of those things where guys, like, well, the guys that I know are very embarrassed if they accidentally order something that turns up, like, a bit sparkly and pink and feel like they have to order something that's short and dark-looking and serious, you know, mm. means business. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've, I've having worked behind a bar for a, a little while now, um, the amount of times that the, that the guys have come up to the bar and, and said, oh, I didn't realise it was going to be in a, in a martini glass or a, mm. or a curvy coupe glass or whatever, or can I have it, like, just in a 
Mandy glass. Yeah. And I think, I think that's silly, really. I mean, each of the, each of the decisions that are made while making a cocktail are made for a reason. And, um, yeah, like I said, I'll be, I'll be sat at the bar with, you know, my little pinky out drinking my pink drink. So I think, I think that speaks volume about my views on that. <laughs> it tastes delicious. <laughs> yeah. Um, as this, as this show is about London trends, um, what trends are you seeing in the drink scenes? Um, well, um, what's hot? Well, it's hot. I mean, I think everybody's, everybody's become so wise to, like, there's just so many lists out there. Top 10 of this and, you know, like, what to, what to drink and where to see and what to do. I think, I'd like to believe at least that the people are coming a little bit wiser and, and kind of working out exactly what they like themselves and, and, and being empowered to, to seek out the right places to enjoy that. Um, low alcohol cocktails is definitely something that's, that's, uh, been gaining a lot of traction and, and rightly so, I think. I think it's, um, you know, drinking cocktails is great and, it, and there's so many different directions that you can go in with it that why should we limit ourselves to, I, mean, I might just give away too much with like how I normally drink on a, on a, on a weekend session, but, but what, I mean, low alcohol drinks and, and, and kind of adult, respectable, well-considered soft options, I think are things that we, that mm. we really, really need to. Um, pay more attention to, and it's, it's something that we've considered at um, at genuine liquorette. We we work with um, the guys at Real Kombucha who use wine um, uh, making methods and uh, and kind of, yeah traditionally wine making methods to create their kombucha, which is absolutely fantastic. I tried making my own kombucha once, and it was about as complex as leaving a, a you know an open jar on my kitchen counter until it just had just a, f- a funky waff about it. But these guys are really taking it seriously. <laughs> my yeah. best friend tried to make one and it exploded. Wow! Because that can happen if you get the. Yeah, too pressure. much yeast or something, but yeah. Yeah, well, it's a symbiotic it. culture of bacteria and yeast. Whenever she brought guys back, they'd be like, "What's that in the corner?" It was this thing that sort of got a life of its own. Mm, it wasn't yeah. a good place. It wasn't a good time. No, not at all. But yeah, I mean, there's there's loads of people who are taking it seriously now. The guys at Square Root and Karma Cola do fantastic soft drinks, and and um, I think it's it's yeah, it's good and important to make sure that for whatever reason you're not drinking, that you can still go out and enjoy the atmosphere, the service, and not feel like you're you know being treated like a like a kid and mm. being served two juices and whatever purees. J two O. Do you remember that? Do you remember yeah, the J2O's? I love J2O's. Yeah, but where have they gone? Do people still drink a J2O? Yeah, they yeah definitely. Out. I mean, they're, they're, they're a pillar of my fridge. If I yeah. went on a date and someone ordered a J2O, I'd be like, no, that's it. <laughs> it's a deal breaker for me. And then, and then when we grew up, it was, uh, it was Hooch, yeah, which made a comeback recently. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know what it is, though. I mean, uh, yeah. Is it bad? I mean... Is it like Bookfast? I love Bookfast. It's got a cute little, I mean, nostalgia about it, isn't it? So, yeah. that's bit like white lightning so, used to love white lightning in the park yeah <laughs> <laughs> amazing so if people want to come check out the bar then we are um we're kicking off um our parties from uh, from this week uh, hosting friends and family and and guests who work in the industry and, and can tell us what they like about it what we should focus on and um we're open to the general boozing public from the 27th of this month fantastic open seven days a week come on come on seven days yeah it's no time for rest thanks monday night drinking <laughs> <laughs> thanks matt and here's this week's news in brief Action Against Hunger London is back. On Tuesday the 25th of September, the world-famous market hall at Borough Market will house some of London's top chefs, bars and street food traders in a bid to create the world's greatest menu. Many of the dishes will be available for this night only. 
get ready for 20 street food pop-ups, live DJ sets, a table tennis challenge, and a number of pop-up bars scattered throughout the party. Tickets are 60 quid ahead, and all proceeds will go directly to Action Against Hunger. Up next, St. Martin's Lane Hotel will be waving a final goodbye to the summer heatwave with a four-day residency from multi-award winning bar from Athens, The Clumsies, in collaboration with Grey Goose. Ranked sixth place in the world's bar 50 best bars in 2017 and recent winner of best international high volume cocktail bar, who knew that was actually a thing, at the Tales of the Cocktail Bar Awards, the Clumsies will be popping up at Blind Spots at Martin's Lane in Lucy Speakeasy from Tuesday the 25th to Friday the 28th of September. And last, but by no means least, arriving in London for the very first time on the 28th of September is the Joy of Sake Festival, hosting 478 premium sakes from 192 breweries across Japan, alongside sake-themed plates from London's top restaurants, including Sushi Samba, The Frog by Adam Hanling, and La Fromagerie, to name a few. Being the world's largest sake festival outside of Japan, the event will be held at the Barbican Centre from 6pm to 9pm, and will include unlimited samplings of sake and one small plate each from 15 participating restaurants. And thank you for listening to this week's News in Brief. We're back with Joseph from Kitchen Theory. Hello, Joseph. Hello. Um, For anyone who is not familiar with Kitchen Theory, can you explain a little bit about the concept? Well, we're an experienced design studio based up in North London, and a big part of, I guess, the foundation of our work is research that we conduct with Oxford University, essentially looking at how we perceive the world through our senses. So everything that us sitting at the table here now, everything we smell, touch, taste, hear, all these things kind of, you know, make up our, our reality, change any one of those senses or those sensory inputs, and all of a sudden you change the person's experience. What we're interested in uh, is mainly looking at how this applies to dining experiences, drinking experiences, and food um, and um, the enjoyment of food beyond just kind of you know food for uh, as a basic need, but you know looking at food as being uh, a way of tapping into great hedonistic sensory pleasures. Mm. It's, it's quite um, niche, <laughs> is how I put it. How what was your background and how did you get into this? Well, niche, yes, but what's interesting is this is the science that we're looking at is intuitive to everybody. It's it's one of those things that it sounds probably a lot more uh, complex from the outside than it really is because um, basically when you look at the Oxford Dictionary, it'll say that flavor is a combination of your sense of smell and your sense of taste, and they combine to give you flavor. But the research that we're doing shows that actually it takes all of your senses. So what you're hearing can impact how you perceive flavor, what you smell, what you touch, what you taste, what you see as colors on a plate uh, can can set your expectations and prime your mind. And that can lead on to whether you like foods or dislike foods. And it's all these sensory associations that we unknowingly have. Yeah. So, say like taste, mm-hmm. then you would construct dishes around, like you'd give them a pavlova, or like would it be more kind of scientific? Right. So, I come from my background as, as a chef, and I met uh, an ex- uh, experimental psychologist called Professor Charles Spence. He's the head of the Cross Modal Lab at Oxford University. He's worked with Heston Blumenthal from the Flat Duck, Fran Adria from El Bulli, and many, many other chefs from around the world. Um, and a lot of what we do is look at how 
these uh, kind of cross-modal effects. And cross-modal means when your two senses are kind of combined because mm -hmm. we kind of think our senses work in isolation. What we really find, though, is in real life that our senses kind of work together to form a picture of, uh, of the world. And so when we design dishes, we're really looking at taking into consideration the whole environment scenario and the experience of the dish and the experience of flavor as opposed to just isolating it to what you smell, what you taste, and what you see. And so um, this really, I guess, has become uh, for us our main kind of guiding light. And a lot of the dishes that we design, a lot of the experiences that we design are really looking at making sure that people get some great food but that it's fun, multi-sensory, and in some way educational. And by educational, I mean learning about ourselves, learning about how we perceive flavor and taste, learning about the associations that we perhaps might not, or we take for granted and might not otherwise think about. Mm. So would so to kind of apply this, would you perhaps do consultancy for a restaurant on their diner's sensory experience dining there? Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing as well, working with... Well, uh, the work is kind of quite wide ranging. So we have our own chef's table where we take people through a 10 course multi-sensory dining experience. But aside from that, we work with, you know, bigger brands, but brands from, it could be car brands, could be uh, fashion brands, could be uh, food and drink brands to design and curate experiences for either their guests or their influencers. And so, um, kind of what's interesting about this is that's the kind of cool flashy side of the work that we do. Mm. But when you're doing that kind of research, ultimately you're getting an understanding of people's um, relationship with food, their sensory relationship with food. That can help us a lot as well with understanding some of the, or kind of looking for solutions for some of the issues that we have in the UK. If we look at things like, let's say, childhood obesity, if we look at the kind of uh, growing um, cancer rates, it's, you know, current research says that up to 40% of cancers could be avoided uh, or are down to bad nutrition, um, uh, lifestyle, and and diet. Mm -hmm. And so if we can understand people's sensory relationship with food, perhaps we can start designing food experiences, and I'm talking about at schools, in hospitals, in care homes, as well as in restaurants, that take that food experience and you can kind of, perhaps in some scenarios, want to encourage more nutritious, more sustainable um, kind of eating. In others, you might just want to heighten people's enjoyment of the experience in some way oh, that's amazing i've often th felt like there was such a link between audio and it, my enjoyment of eating that i find it impossible to like enjoy myself in prep because i find the background music makes me feel a bit anxious and a bit unrelaxed and i find any kind of chart music for me puts me in a state where i can't enjoy my food so i go mm. to spoons the double music <laughs> license nice. and classic carpets keep you busy for ages yeah, yeah, yeah that's well, why you go to spoons but that's why i go sit on like a park bench because i can't enjoy my food in an environment with too much music well, there's, and there's, there's research behind that. So there's a lot of restaurants and bars that, you know, play really, really loud music. And research will show that if you play, that noises over 70 decibels, um, and that's not hard to reach in a bar, and a, especially with the din of the crowd and, you know, um, actually suppress your ability to perceive saltiness, um, and sweetness. Wow. Hence, when you're on an airplane, they end up putting a lot more sugar and salt in the food mm. to make it flavorful because your sense of smell isn't really working that well and the, the noise, the pollution in the environment is reduced. All that's kind of working against airplane food. Are you, are you pumping the tunes? Yeah, what's oh. the music like it, Daniel and Nicola? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, there's going to be a broad range of it, but I think this is definitely something that we should consider a little bit more often. Mm. Yeah. 
it's just that kind of what, what you said is you you would go and sit on a bar, on a bench, sorry, and yeah. kind of well, that's kind of mindful eating, right? And if everyone partook in mindful eating, I think we'd be a lot more mindful of what we ate. Mm. And you know, a lot of what we're talking about essentially with you know paying attention to the texture, the the uh, the, the way your food looks and smells and tastes, it's just being mindful, really. And we take a lot of this for granted in this day and age, and especially because we're not. Most people aren't cooking from scratch at home. Most kids can identify, like in the research that we did with um, kids at a primary school, can identify hummus, but they don't know what a chickpea is. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of idea that, we, you know, we, we've kind of lost touch in a way with uh, the sensory pleasures and just tactile sensations of just ingredients and uh, food in some way. Rewinding back a little bit to your chef's table. Yeah. Say, like, we're, a, we're coming to your chef's table. Yeah. What sort of dishes can we expect? So, or does it change every time? It cha- no, no, it doesn't change every time. It's we, so in a similar way um, to what you were talking about earlier um, uh, with with the cocktails. It's interesting, isn't it? How now, whether you're a bar or a restaurant, dishes and cocktails are no longer just a, a dish and a cocktail. They've got a story and a, a theme and an experience behind them. And we kind of, I guess, elevate this and take it to another level. Um, so. Let's say if you're eating one of the dishes that we have on our menu at the moment has got jellyfish. Jellyfish in terms of, you know, the kind of stinging type. Okay. Um, and that's kind of most people's reaction is, oh, I'm not sure. Like, yeah. why would you want to feed me jellyfish? Bad association. I did get sure. stung by jellyfish. Sure. No, no, no. And we've had plenty of people at the table who say have kind of these kind of stories about it. But what's interesting is we know that we've overfished the seas and the oceans. And basically at this point, there's virtually no really, like, depends on who you ask. You ask you know, anybody about sustainability and you'll get a whole load of different answers, right? Um, when it comes to the seas, we know we've overfished the seas. We need to find alternative sources of uh, protein. Jellyfish are one of the only things, well, one of the very few uh, sea creatures that we could eat and actually have a net positive effect on the world. They are blooming in numbers because the rising temperatures of the seas and oceans. They are blooming in numbers because we've killed off a lot of their predators and we've either eaten them or thrown them back in as bycatch. They're very, um, they're quite a kind of uh, irascible, uh, invasive species. So they've done everything from raided salmon farms or raided beaches. There was a UK warning on the beaches this summer about jellyfish. Um, so it's happening on our shores as we speak. Fighting on the beaches. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, it, it's, they, they've disrupted uh, power stations out at sea. They're, they're vicious little things. Anyway, point is... Um, but they're delicious. They are delicious. Oh, well, wow. when, when they're, so they're what's, eaten. What's, in, the, what's their texture like? Well, this is the intro. Ah, so you, you hit on a. See, perfect. So this is why she's the boss. There you go. <laughs> so that's kind of the first thing that we think about, right? You expect it to kind of be a simple thing of move the F and it becomes jelly-ish, right? But mm. it's not, and that's how you kind of expect the texture to be. But it's, um, if anything, got a kind of satiating bite or crunch to it. Ooh. It's almost like a really nice seaweed salad. Like if you like Japanese kind of seaweed, you salads love a and seaweed stuff salad, like Joe. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm still not convinced. We're not well, there there's, there's, uh, <laughs> Maybe not in the up. sliminess that comes over, but maybe some of the kind of crunchiness. Uh, so what do you serve the jellyfish with? So we serve it with a fermented cucumber gazpacho um, the, and, and, and seaweed and pickled ginger. And we marinate the jellyfish itself in a kind of Japanese seasoning. I mean, I'll try it. Is it is by far oh, one of you. the <laughs> more memorable and popular dishes that we have. And I mean memorable in a positive sense, because 
I think we all approach it with this thing of this is going to be really weird. And actually, mm. when you taste it, there's so many things that you can relate it to, and it becomes quite understandable that people in Korea, China, Japan are eating this. It's mm. not like it's it's completely unthought of. Um, it's just about kind of adjusting our uh, perceptions and how how we can relate to it. So, if you were served that dish. Because we want to focus on the texture, we've worked with uh, the IV Group, who are an audio branding agency based in Nashville, and they have created an audio soundscape that you listen to over headphones as you're enjoying the dish, which accentuates the crunchy textures in it. Ah. And to couple with that, we have a projection map table, so you have the sea kind of shimmering beneath you as you you eat your... That's amazing. I actually... um, I went to Arzac in San Sebastian, which is a three Michelin star restaurant. I went um, a few years ago, and they—I remember—we had a red mullet, which was served on an iPad with a with a video of the sea under the iPad. And that was the point where my boyfriend was like, "I'm out. This is too too far for me." But until that point, actually, it hadn't been an overwhelming sensory experience. I think with with sensory dining, there's such a fine line between it being something that feels really genuine and maybe a bit kitsch. And I think I've done a lot of bad sensory dining, and I'm really excited about your concept I think I think it sounds so considered and researched but I've been to a lot where it's just like stick on some headphones and yeah. <laughs> remember the one we went to it was it was that definitely stick and, on some headphones yeah. and yeah and blindfolding and usually what it is is it's a, a, a food designer or a food uh, artist who's paired up with a chef to curate an evening mm. and that tends to happen quite a bit and when I hear sensory dining my skin crawls um Every dining experience is a sensory experience. We are simply creating... We have a challenge on ourselves that we're talking about multisensory flavor perception. So what we're asking you to do is actually scrutinize and look in, you know, really experience the food with all your senses. We're trying to draw your senses back into the food rather than create a circus around you that's kind mm. of like pretty cool event but the food was a bit mediocre but Mm. i'm coming from a chefing background as a my team and we've all worked in very high level michelin star and london hotel restaurants and uh the idea here is to take the science and look at how you can take great food and elevate it from there and i think that if you have that as your starting point then you can mm. only kind of produce but what you said i think is crucial that it's focusing in further into the food rather than being distracted mm. by all this circus outside. So if people would like to come to the chef's table, um, wh- how often does it take place and where can they book? So we open to the public, and by the public, I mean, we can book a kind of seat at the table um, uh, the last Friday, Saturday of every month. Other than that, we do private bookings for groups of eight to ten. And now we have our Christmas feast menu out. So I think we have two dates up for the public in the in end of November and December. Fantastic. And they, and they book on Kitchen Theory? Uh, yes, Kitchen uh, kitchen Theory. They can Google Kitchen Theory. We're all over that. Or uh, the Gastrophysics Chef's Table. Fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. This is the AT, the About Time podcast. This is it. End of the show nearly. But before we go... We like to do a little review slot. I think if people are wondering at this point why we're acting a bit weird, the very nice gentleman from... Um, Matt. Matt from Genuine Nicorette did bring some cocktails along and showed us the concept, and I think they might have gone to our heads. <laughs> but they're delicious. And, and we're drunk. <laughs> they're delicious, and we can testify that you should go and try their cocktails. Yes, we have been supping them. <laughs> um, so this is the part of the show where we talk about where we've been eating recently. Um, where have you been eating, Alicia? Well, my brother was in town. I thought I'd pull out all the stops. Took him to Galvin at Windows. Okay. 
Um, what, what is what? It, so what's Garvin, the vibe at okay, Garvin at Windows is a Michelin star restaurant on in in on the twenty eighth floor of the London Hilton on Park Lane Hotel. I'm talking views. I'm talking white linen tablecloths. Really nice. Re- but you went for breakfast. Is that is that something you want at breakfast? Like that whole white tablecloth. So service that's the thing. thing is the they've devised a new brunch menu. But the brunch menu doesn't start until midday. Mm. If I'm honest with you, it lends itself more to a lunch menu mm. because there are the dishes are a little bit heartier. There mm. are egg dishes and there's avocado on toast. But That's the thing, isn't it? With those high-end restaurants, you wouldn't go there and just get like a piece of toast or like a bowl of porridge. You would go there for the full experience. So Absolutely. when they say brunch, it's often kind of like American brunch, which is lunch. Yes. If I was to go there for brunch, I'd like to go there at 11, but they didn't start serving food till midday. Mm. And then you're like, well, do we start drinking? I, I mean, you know, we, we had a, a little books fizz, <laughs> which is really nice. Um, so my brother um, ordered the new sort of kind of very quirky spin on a fry-up. Mm. Um, like a fancy fry-up? Yes. He asked me what polenta was. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Oh, I love people from the north. <laughs> the north. He's just not... He's so... I love him. Uh, he's like, Lisa, what's, um, what's polenta? I was like, you know, polenta. <laughs> Didn't know what polenta was. Um, so he had a fry-up and it had soft polenta on it. Two poached eggs, maple cured ribeye bacon, stir fried chili oyster mushroom, and a very posh looking black pudding. Mm, he, like a he fancy fryer. Yeah. What was At it? Twenty two pounds. Yeah, you're going to expect. You're going to pay for it. It is a Michelin star restaurant. I get that. What was it like portion wise? Because I went to the Shard recently and had one of those fancy fry ups, and it was like such a small conceptual portion. I feel like the point of a fry up is it's meant to be like quite yes. big and filling. I mean, he said his words. It was deceptively filling. Wow. Thing was, is there was no bread, so you kind of had to order bread. Really? I ordered fry up. That's yeah. You need the bread or the the fried. Where's the fried bread at? Absolutely. I love fried. I love fried bread. Oh my gosh, I love fried bread. Um, And so I ordered some bread, but I ordered pumpernickel bread, to which he thought, I don't, I don't like. Does he think you've gone really London? He's like, I just don't know who you are anymore. (laughs) Um, I, I. Went quite classic with mine. I did go avocado on toast. It was delicious. They put... It was sourdough toast and this cheese from Lyon. And then avocado and then just little segments of orange. Mm. And it was really, really... A very posh avocado on toast. How much are we talking for avocado on toast? £14. £14. Those views don't come cheap. (laughs) Wow. The service was insane. Yeah. Um, So we had... We had a bloody, uh, not a bloody, uh, books fizz. And then a, a wine was matched to our, um, to our dish. <laughs> avocado on toast. Yes. I'm sorry, how do you pair avocado on toast with wine? I mean, I, I get know. it with fish or with meat, yeah. but like, what, they're bringing out the flavour. He was like, you know, you've got this cheese from Leon. <laughs> you got this, this. I was like, he could have honestly given me anything. I and he'd be like, mm, perfect pairing. Was like, delicious. Mm, like crisp and fruity. <laughs> And my brother got a, a, a lovely Merlot. Or oh, was it a Malbec? I don't know. Um, so that was that was lovely. There's something about the idea of like a Malbec and a fry-up that feels so weird and wrong to me. I mean, I'm sure it was lovely, but it just sounds so debutant. Yeah, it was... Oh, I, just, I just laughed. And then we weren't going to have dessert because James, you know, said I'm very full. And I was like, okay. And then chocolate fondant. Mm. 
chocolate fondant. I mean, at this point, it's not breakfast anymore. At this it? point, it's not breakfast. I'm too, I'm too, you know, alcohol drinks what? down. Paired wines in. <laughs> yeah. By by one p.m., I'm having the chocolate fondant, which was delicious. You know, you break that the barrier, the oozy chocolate, and then the lovely member of staff rolled around this sort of um, digestif trolley. Is that how you say it? Yeah. And there With was spirits. brandies, there was scotch, there was amaretto, there was everything. And so then we had an amaretto. Lovely. Yeah. So basically did like a mini Christmas. Yes. And we had an amaretto and it was absolutely lovely. <laughs> and we were walking around for a bit and then James said, oh, I've got to do with a nap. So then we just went home. Just a day in the life of Alicia Grimshaw. Yeah, it was, it was lovely. Is it the cheapest brunch around? No. Yeah. I think it's one of those brunches where you go and you save up a bit of dollar and you kind of do it. You know, a cinnamon roll is four quid. Mm. But I like it when people go to those kind of restaurants and they just order that. Like when I went to the Shard most recently, there was a table of girls next to me that just ordered a pan of chocolate, which was three quid each. And I thought you're winning at life because it's like uh, 25 quid to go up to the view at the Shard. Go up, spend three quid on a pan of chocolate and sit there for an hour. Why not? That's clever, that. It's genius. Well, my dining experience was nowhere near as exciting or as boozy as yours. I went to Sartoria in Mayfair, which I've been to before. So it's the only restaurant on Savile Row. The only restaurant on Savile Row. It's owned by a D&D. It's Italian. Um, it's swanky, but not... I don't know, it's hard to describe. It's not modern swanky. I'd say it's probably on the stuffier side of swanky in that it is the kind of place that people who frequent Savile Row would go for dinner. Mm. Um, It's not like the kind of sexy fish crowd. Um, It's quite classic in style. I, I I found the food at times good and then at times a little bit trying too hard. And I, I have like a bit of a fine line, I think, with the high-end dining. I really love the experience of going to an expensive restaurant and it feeling special and you're getting doled up and like I put on my latest latest purchases and I put on some heels and that feels really nice. And I think that's a kind of an important part of life of that like special going out feeling. But then you also want to get full. And I often have that like feeling when I go to these kind of restaurants that like you're having to like inhale a bread basket and you're being quite cautious of how much you're spending versus how much, how full you're getting for what you're spending. And I feel like Sartoria at times felt like you were spending a lot of money and it was like a small amount of food. But then because it's Italian and because it's on Savile Row, the food is quite rich and a bit like what your brother said about being deceptively full. I did come away being like, wow, I'm really full because it's quite rich and creamy and, and those kind of flavours. So we started with a burrata, which was delicious, with broad beans and peas. Um, and then after that, we had a summer salad, which had a softballed egg on it. I th- um, you've lost me. Uh, yolk and leaves, <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, and it also had a, a pulses puree, so kind of like a puree of lentils and stuff, which felt, I don't know, there was something texturally that was a bit off because it was like a puree, which was quite creamy, with a summer salad, which is quite crunchy and crispy, and then an egg, which is quite soft. And I felt like it was just like a texture sensory overload and it didn't quite work the burrata however was delicious and then for main course we had a cacio pepe fettuccine like classic it's classic you can't go wrong with a cheese and pepper pasta like it's always good and then we had a home cured black cod with licorice and i i ordered it because i think sometimes it's like good to order out of your comfort zone and it's a bit of a test of the cooking for me like i just I, th- I think I should have ordered better, but I can never really get on board with the flavour of licorice. And I don't think it's something that you partic- I particularly want in savoury food. So 
cod and licorice it was just a bit a bit too much going on i did feel like with sartoria like the presentation is really great the vibe is like very distinguished it feels like a special night out but i just felt sometimes with the food that it was like trying so hard but actually like you do at the end of the day want something that's just delicious and licorice and cod for me wasn't a delicious pairing and like pulses and soft egg was not a delicious pairing and you can't like get past that but it was very much saved by dessert we had an amazing pistachio ice cream like you know when you get a pistachio ice cream Mm. that's like really roasted just like really nutty like almost on the savory side it was so good and with a pistachio cake and that was like okay fine so they brought it back i would say like it's quite a good place maybe to go for like an anniversary or like a, one of your parents' din- um, birthdays, but it isn't just somewhere to go for like a casual night because it feels so special and the portions are tiny. The thing is, though, what I think with Italian food is, you just got to go back to basics. Yeah. I sometimes I don't know if Italian food lends itself to being kind of high end and fancy. There are, so I would kind of agree with you there. I think there's certain cuisines that you enjoy more when they're high end. So like French high end or Japanese high end can be an incredible, like Asian high end. I do kind of agree that I often feel like Italian the like the lower end the better you want those big bowls of pasta loads of cheese like the more garlicky and tomatoey the better and you go to quite like rarefied restaurants and it's like oh, okay it's like tiny portion of pasta and i went to another dnd restaurant recently which again was like small portions of pasta and you kind of wait come away thinking you spent 14 quid on a bowl of pasta that didn't fill you up and you go to Italy, you spend seven euros and it's like massive mm. so i think you do have to be a bit like authentic and honest in how that cuisine is meant to be served and it's not meant to be small portions so that is what i've been eating okay a mixed review it's hit yeah. and miss it's hit and miss i would i would go back but maybe i would just order a bit more carefully okay yeah so that is what we've been eating this week and we've been chatting about london trends if you enjoyed this episode then don't forget to subscribe there's going to be a new episode out every week and rate and review so more people can find it in the meantime we're on twitter at about time mag at alicia underscore grimshaw And a little shout out to our sponsors, Moorish, for sponsoring this episode. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to The AT. For more of the best things to do in London and beyond, visit abouttimemagazine.co.uk or follow us at About Time Mag. This has been a Candy Store production for About Time magazine, hosted by Angelica Malin and Alicia Grimshaw, and produced by Van Connor. Spirit Body by Ketzer appears under Creative Commons 3.0. Visit ketzermusic.com for more, with recording facilities in partnership with Jova London. Head to jovalondon.com for more information.